Hi, my name's Shelley Flett. Welcome to the Dynamic Leader Podcast, where I share insights, experiences, successes, and failures with leaders from across a broad range of industries and business structures. I maintain that each of us needs to be open to sharing our experiences and making the leadership playground safe enough to fail, to grow, to have fun, and ultimately become more dynamic. So please sit back and enjoy. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another Dynamic Leader Conversation. Today's topic is on onboarding, not recruitment or induction, but specifically onboarding. And I think it's a really interesting topic because I think so many people get it wrong. Um, And I don't mean organizations as much as I mean perhaps leaders, but uh, I'm not the expert in onboarding. Brad Giles is, and that's why we've got him here today to talk about that with me. Um, Brad has more than 20 years experience as a serial entrepreneur a strategic planner and a leadership coach. Um, He's been twice recognized as a BRW Fast 100 founder, uh, as well as being an EY Entrepreneur of the Year finalist and is actively involved in EQ and entrepreneurs organizations. So I'm pretty sure he knows his stuff. Um, Thank you so much for joining us today, Brad. Well, thank you. It's lovely to be here. So, uh, the topic of onboarding, I, I could ask uh, why not recruitment or uh, why not uh, exiting or, you know, there's so many things. Onboarding is an interesting one. Why onboarding? Well, almost everyone has a bad onboarding story, okay? And almost every company does a bad job of onboarding. It's just it's the, the more that I dug into the topic, I've spent three years on this, the more that I dug into it, the more that I come to realize that uh, this is a real issue that costs a crazy amount of money um, uh, and impact. And I mean, we spend most of our lives at work, okay? Most of our waking lives at work. um, And so many people are uh, unhappy at work or put another way, the greatest source of misery at work, I believe, comes from misunderstanding. I thought you meant that and you thought I meant that. And that manifests itself across a whole range of people and areas. And yeah, so with the money and the misery and everything else, it just became more and more compelling to me because there wasn't really a simple go-to book about onboarding. And like you said in the initiation there or in, in the in the start, onboarding it's it's its own thing. It's it's not induction. It's not orientation. It's it's its own thing, and it matters. Can you share with us what onboarding actually is in its own right? Yeah. So onboarding is the process of taking someone from outside your organisation and making them a productive, independent, and confident member of your team who understands the culture, the technical and process expectations and your expectations as their manager. So that's the that's the definition that I landed on after years of research. Love uh, it. B- believe it or not. And 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 what's important about that and 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 the distinction between hiring on boarding is that you can have someone who is capable of succeeding in the organization. They might be qualified, they might be experienced, they might have all the skills and perhaps even the personality, but they don't understand how to succeed in your organization. They don't know the way that your your software works or your 
systems or processes work. Um, they don't understand, you know, the culture. What's the wrong thing to do in the culture? What's the right thing across all of its different facets and the behaviours? And they don't understand, you know, what gets on your goat as uh, as their manager and what makes you really happy as their manager. So they've got the potential to succeed. It's, it's like to a sports analogy, right? It's like we're giving a new basketball player, we've given them the uniform and we've given them the ball. Like they're not integrated with the team. Like it's all of the other stuff that's onboarding. Mm, I love that. That's a great metaphor. And and it makes me think of, um, you know, the difference between the, the really glossy uh, high-res brochure versus you drive up to the actual destination and it's a bit dull and boring and everything's dead and worn out and broken and all of that kind of thing. It appears there's like this disconnect. And that's why everybody has, a, a you know, almost everybody, Asterix, has a, you know, has a story about a, a bad onboarding experience. And let me tell you, you think, oh, it's only the small companies. No, it's across the board. I did a research study with 1,100 CEOs and hiring managers around the world and divided it up into the size of company. And it's 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 equally terrible. Like it, it's it's just such an opportunity for business today. What is your worst onboarding uh, story or case study that you heard through your research? Look, I, I guess it depends through which lens, right? But I guess that the, 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 what's the worst? It's when people quit. I had someone I had someone join and they quit a week later or two weeks later. There's so many, many stories of that. Um, and and that is it's just such a failure and, and such a waste of everybody's time. You know, the manager feels terrible because they're like, oh, I've got to go back and start again. The boss of the manager feels terrible because it's like, what are we doing down there? Uh, and the new hire feels terrible because it's like, oh, why did I make this bad decision? So, I mean, yeah, the the there's there's that side of it. The second part of it, there's this one guy Josh I interviewed uh, in in North America, um, and and he said the best onboarding process that he ever experienced actually he he didn't get the role. He was an unsuccessful fit. Um, so he got the he got the role, but he didn't keep the job. The onboarding ejected him. Yeah, <clears throat> and that's and and that's what a good onboarding process or an effective onboarding process does. It tells the leaders that this person is an unsuccessful fit. So so Josh was was really good about the uh, about the, the 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 experience because he was like. Look, I knew ultimately when it came to the end of the 90 days that I was not going to be successful there. I didn't have the right cultural alignment. You know, they saw things different to me. And so I was so lucky to have experienced, he said, the onboarding. And it just gave me a whole new perspective on it. So yeah, maybe not the worst. The worst is when you just lose people straight off the bat because they've it's not mm. what they expected, but a different take perhaps. Yeah, I like that. And it makes me think about um, the whole recru <laughs> recruitment process um, because usually, you know, the recruitment happens at the most inconvenient time because, uh, you know, people resign and you don't know about it and then they do and you've kind of got to um, drop everything or at least put some put some focus on recruiting. And so, you know, you bring out the template of the last time that you recruited for that role and dust it off and pop it up on whatever 
um, recruitment platform you're using and the problem kind of starts there because my question would be why are we not why are we not um, having conversations around cultural fit before we get to onboarding? Yeah, and and the broader question is is how do we get into this situation, right? Um, because we've got busy managers who they're just like, look, we had a person quit last week and or last month, and we need to fill the role. So, so that they're already very busy, and no one really knows who owns onboarding. Okay, because it's like there's this meme. I don't know if this is appropriate for the audience, and now Shelley starts to get worried. But there's this meme where these these two Spider-Man people in the same costume pointing at each other. Right? It's the same kind of thing because HR's pointing at the manager, saying, "Well, the manager owns it," and the manager's pointing at HR, saying, "Well, you own it." So there there isn't really a sense, first of all, of of, of ownership. The second thing is that, look, no one's, let's be fair, no one's ever been fired for doing a bad onboarding. No one. Like if, mm. if you did a poor onboarding job at a role, no one's ever been fired for that. Now, sure, salespeople may have been fired because they didn't meet budget, okay? People may have been fired for mm, behavioral issues, let's say, or, you know, something like that. But but no one's ever been. So there's not really an accountability in that sense. So when it's part-time, Okay, and and you know, no one, there's no real accountability around it, you know, and it's like there's an intangible, and people get to this point where they're like, I think this person's good to go. Let's just let them run. They don't stick to the process because there is no accountability. That means that we end up in this situation where it's it's treated as a second class citizen, but the problem on boarding. But the problem is, is that when you do that, the costs are just enormous to financial and cultural. Mm. And, you know, just on cultural, is is part of it um, that maybe the person, the hiring manager doesn't fully understand or appreciate or live and breathe the culture of the organisation themselves? Oh, oh, look, I definitely, I definitely think so. Um, Look, we're trying to, we're trying to zoom out as wide as possible and encapsulate every circumstance, but um, the the job of a leader is to grow leaders. Okay. So that means you've got to understand the culture Um, that, you know, you've got to look around and grow the people who report to you. Like that is the essence of leadership and, and, and management. Um, so when you're looking at culture, certainly that person needs to understand it. What what I kind of advocate for in the book is understanding core values, first of all, and then understanding behaviors, which are a bit more binary compared to, uh, to core values and are a subset of core values. Um, so for example, in behaviors, you would say, well, we always do this and we never do that. And then across a 90 day period, um, having actual real stories from within the organization um, that explain the behaviors and the core values. For example, we never do this. And this is a story about where we didn't do that and we were successful as a result. So certainly, yes, we need to get the managers to understand um, the culture. Um, um, but that can happen through stories. And and and, mm. and depending on the situation, supervisor, manager, executive, et cetera, um, you know, those things need to be alive in the organisation, absolutely. Of 
the leaders that I work with, I could I could confidently say there's probably only 30% of them that I'm, that know and can recall and even talk about the behaviours and the, the values of their organisation, let alone the behaviours that go with those and not even a story. <laughs> and, and that's where, and I do a lot of work in that space to go, if, you're, if you don't understand the values of your organisation and you're not living and breathing them, then what are you creating? Well, that's a really important point because I'm sure that that 70% who don't do that are good people with good intentions, right? Yeah. I absolutely believe that. But what they're doing is what they believe is right, okay? They, they're trying to do the right thing. And, and that's where misunderstanding comes about. And mis- remember, misunderstanding is the problem that we're trying to solve here by, by effective onboarding. So, so if... You can assume that that those people may most likely, given the data set that I've got, weren't onboarded really well to understand the values and the behaviours really well, hence why they are teaching or, or implementing what they believe to be the right thing. And so what you get is this misunderstanding across an organisation that leads to um, issues and, and challenges and problems where Oh, I thought we did it that way. Now, it could be related to the culture, but it also could be related to other things, you know, technical process, other expectations. But around the culture, look, this is not an appropriate thing related to our culture, um, subset of values or behaviours or whatever it is. So absolutely, um, core value stories, behaviour stories, core purpose stories, like that is how people get to understand these things. And the more that alive they are, and the more that, that that they are fostered by leadership, the more impact it's going to have. Mm. And so um, how you, you mentioned 90 days as being the ideal for the onboarding process. Um, for anyone listening goes, I don't have 90 days to dedicate to someone. Um, but what does a 90-day onboarding plan look like at, a, at, a, like at its basic yeah. Um, well, let's be clear on what we're saying when we say 90 days. What? what uh, so how did I get 90 days? Well, first of all, um, there is legislation in place, which is the probation period across the world for, for most countries. I, I studied as many first world countries as I could relative to the effort and, and generally landed on it's generally accepted, even in places like China, that 90 days, there's a change in the legislation from um, standard uh, what's fair and what's not compared to before that, where it's like we're in a probation period. So there's a reason that I started with 90 days, because really, as much as we want the person to be successful, just like Josh, I mentioned before, also, we want to know if this is the wrong person and that we should exit them. Okay. We want to have a really, really clear and binary distinction within the legal period. So it starts with the law, believe it or not. Mm. Second, um, in the data that I studied, 1100 companies, as I said earlier, um, what, what we found is that, is that, 83% of companies have an onboarding process of 14 days or less, and only 4% have 90 days. Okay. But what happens is that, so you got this 83% at 14 days. And then what happens is that there's this this uptick in the curve after 
30 days, between 30 and 90 days on the effectiveness and understanding that occurs by way of onboarding. So basically, almost everyone, 83%, almost everyone is doing a 14-day or less, and there was 49% who had 50, pardon me, 49% who had seven days or less. But the real impact happens after 30 days to 90 days. So, so that's the first part of the response. The second is, what are we saying by onboarding? We're not saying that a manager needs to have a full-time job holding the hand of the new uh, hire metaphorically. What we're saying is that you need to come to a decision after 90 days. Is this person a successful fit or are they an unsuccessful fit uh, and need to leave the organization? And a successful fit means that, as I said earlier, they're a productive, independent, confident member of the team who understands those things. So we start by understanding what does success look like after 90 days, some roles, you're not going to be fully productive in the role. For example, a sales role with a six or nine month sales cycle, you're just not going to get to full productivity in that point. But that doesn't mean that we can't define what does success look like in 90 days and have a clear line in the sand. And so if I'm a, a leader and I'm recruiting someone into my team, I know that at 90 days, I kind of need to make a decision on that. That makes sense. I also need to be responsible for them being um, given the right support and tools and, and guidance. Do you see that as being an issue in itself? The reason that we're spending the money and the time to hire someone is because we want them to be successful, okay? So no one does a new hire with the intent of making them an unsuccessful fit, of, of, of exiting them. Like we want to commit the resources and the time and the effort and whatever it takes if, within reason to make this new person successful, um, but it comes to planning and preparation. Now, I don't know if I've answered your question there, but I, I had a go at it. <laughs> so I think what I'm I'm sort of um, thinking about, uh, you know, roles where you, the leader doesn't necessarily have the capacity. So if I, if I sort of step back right. and go on onboarding processes with um, in organizations. So, you know, I've got a, a contact center background, so it's a revolving door. So mm -hmm. you you bring in, in, you've got intakes of people coming in and your onboarding process will last two to three, even four weeks, uh, but you've got a group going through it. So it makes sense. There's this, you know, there's an investment, but it's not one-to-one. -one. It's one-to-many. And so you can put more, um, I guess, energy and effort into that program versus a uh, one leader, one person coming on. I know that they need to know all these things, but <clears throat> I don't have the capacity to do that. And, you know, I don't have multiple people coming in at the same time. And what does that look like for me? Yeah. One-to-one, -one, I spelled this out in the book. Uh, and, and what I advocate is I map it out and I say, so what's the cost in dollars and what's the cost in time if you were to do a one-to-one -one with a direct report? So to reverse that, now let's take one step back. 
the average attrition rate in Australia and New Zealand pre-pandemic was about 17% across all industries. Sure, maybe you're in a higher or lower, but let's work with that. If we work on Jeff Bezos to pizza rule, that means that we should ideally have about a 10 or 12 to uh, direct reports to each manager. So each manager should have about 10 to 12. So that means that maybe once or twice, if you're on the absolute average, you need to hire if things are average. So once or twice per year, we're saying a 90-day onboarding process. And then to implement it as I've advocated, I'm kind of saying I think it's about 15, 16 hours across. Over 90 days. Over 90 days. Okay. So so that is uh, a couple of hours to prepare the, the what what does the person need to understand? That's called the role scorecard. So what is how do I define success in this role so that I'm very, very, very clear? Um, and then there's, uh, you, you know, I would say like an hour per week uh, and then an hour at the end. So that adds up to about 15, 16 hours across 90 days. So it doesn't need to be onerous, but if your focus is, is, is on executing that role scorecard, that can make the difference. Yeah, absolutely. And it gives leaders the, you know, even knowing that. So I'm not really sure what it is I'm going to be doing with this person, but I'm going to put an hour aside in my calendar. Yeah. Once, you know, once I've got this the start date all lined up, I'm going to put the put some things in my calendar to ensure that this night because I think one of the things with the 90 days is for the first week or, or two weeks, they're front of mind and they need that support and then they tail off. And so having something in your calendar that you kind of establish from the very beginning to ensure the 90-day, um, I guess, process is, is run it yeah. is helpful. Yeah. So there are two tools in the book. The first is the role scorecard that I just mentioned, and that explains what does success look like for the new hire in 90 days. So how do we define success? And the second one is how. So that's the 90-day onboarding sprint plan. Mm. And so that is what do you go through at each of those uh, 13 weekly meetings and how do you make it effective? And as a quick example, we mentioned behaviours before, core values or core uh, or, or behaviour stories. And so let's say that we've got a core values story. We could talk about that. So this is an example of get it done, one of our values. And person A did this and that and three bags full. And that was an example of that story. So that could just explain one part of the core value and like I said, 13 weeks, pretty quickly, they're going to get more of an understanding. But then you can really lay that back to the person. So have you seen any examples of the core values or behaviors in the last week? Tell me a story. Uh, oh, I so saw this person did that and that and that was. So it's that course correction. And why 13 weeks? So there's this, there's this problem in psychology called the Ebbinghaus forgetting curve. Uh, and mm. um, what it it comes from the 1890s, a chap called Herman Ebbinghaus. Now, he discovered that when we're taught something, seven days later, we forget 90% of what we're taught. Okay. Um, and so there was this one chap in the interviews, I can't help but quickly tell you this. And he said, look, here's what I do with onboarding. I don't know what all this garbage is. What I do is I sit them down on their first day and I tell them what to do. And if they don't like it, well, then that's too bad. I'm not going to come back and tell them stuff again. And that wasn't my prompting. That was his onboarding, right? That Well, that was his induction, I suppose I would say. So 
those people forget 90% of what he says. But the thing about that forgetting curve is that after a week, if you then reiterate, if you go back and teach them again, it'll go back tonight to only 10% retention, but it'll be at a different angle. And then the third week, if you teach them the same things again, then you're getting to about 50% retention. And by the fourth week, you're getting to 90% retention. Um, and so that speaks to the first month, um, the understand phase of the onboarding process and why that's so important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, makes so much sense. And um, having read the book, My First 90 Days, uh, it it follows a similar kind of approach, only it's the other way around. Yes, yes, that's that's an important point because that's about how do I onboard myself into an organization. Mm-hmm. But see, I reckon that the responsibility of getting someone to understand lies with the manager. Mm-hmm. Okay. So they might be capable to succeed in the role. They may want to succeed in the role, the new hire, but whether or not they understand, like that comes down to the, their manager, the person they respond, uh, they report to, uh, and that was part of the compelling nature of this book. Um, mm. Is is I wanted new hires to 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 maybe not get let off the hook, but to have every chance of succeeding, so that the new managers, the new hires manager, understood it was their responsibility to get this stuff done to be successful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so how with onboarding now being less face to face? potentially more virtual. How has that changed things? Have you noticed? I mean, you did your study at a very interesting yeah. time. Uh, and and now we're in hybrid. So we've gone from virtual to hybrid, let's say. Some people do. But but here's the thing. What it's it the I, I wanted to kind of make it timeless because the 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 question remains the same. What does success look like in this role in 90 days? And I could have put a chapter about uh, virtual or how do you do it over Zoom or whatever, but it, it wouldn't be timeless. And the, But the answer still remains the same. So think about if you have a new hire that starts in 91 days, let's say, at that point in time, 90 days in the future, how what must that person understand so that you can rate them as their manager, uh, like a 7 or 8 or a 9 out of 10, on their understanding of the cultural expectations and the technical and process expectations and their expectations or their understanding of your expectations as their manager. It's it's exactly the same. Whether you're doing it over a Zoom call or whether you're doing it in person, it's it's still exactly the same. You, you This is an example of best practice and the job to do is to ha- understand how do you get best practice to work in your situation? Because that's the question still applies in the 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 the, the, the multi onboarding group uh, call center that you described earlier, and it applies on Zoom. It it's it's still what does success look like? How do I make a decision in ninety days? Successful fit or unsuccessful fit? Do you think that um, having less uh, in person contact needs to potentially extend out the ninety days? Because I think about. Um, and not so much people that have been in the workforce a while and are quite seasoned at it, but I do think about the incidental lessons that you learn, um, a lot about the culture, a lot about technology and process, uh, you know, not so much about 
expectations but but yeah i i've seen the um challenges with that being missed with people who are just entering the workplace um well i've onboarded people during the pandemic via zoom and it it's just it's about being adaptable um so 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 maybe I'll, I'll i'll repeat what i said earlier given that i only have the opportunity to work on this person on zoom or teams what does success look like in 90 days when when the yes. legal when the legal probation period ends yep I get that. I think mm. it's the it's the inconsideration of the exposure that they used to have in an in-person environment versus the exposure they probably don't have now. Does that change anything? Or is it that we've got to equip them with different kinds of questions or different contact points or, or different opportunities to, because some of the things that you learn are just by accident. Yeah. Um I suppose if you have no choice, then you have no choice. You still like the 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 time limit will still run out. Um, certainly, if you can get if you can make it hybrid rather than virtual, it, it would be a better human experience. Okay, mm -hmm. especially for the cultural side. One of the things I talk about is an onboarding buddy, right? Uh, maybe you've heard of it before, but. Uh, digging into it, um, there's a significant benefit to having an onboarding buddy, A, and B, ironically, having somebody as an onboarding buddy who was recently onboarded rather than an old um, master, let's let's perhaps say, who's been around the business for many, many years. Mm. Um, so, yeah, ideally, it's hybrid. There's no doubt about it. But you've got to work with the cards that you dealt. And if you have to do it in virtual uh, only, um, then you have to do it like mm. and, and, and that time limit will still run out um uh, um and it still comes back to the question if given that i'm in given the situation how can i uh, make this person understand so that they're a successful fit in 90 days yeah yeah absolutely yeah so i keep using the phrase this is where I ask you a question. I can't help but do that. I apologize. No, I don't apologize. Um, so I keep using the phrase successful fit and unsuccessful fit. It's very, very intentional. Um, what do you remember about good fit and bad fit having read the book? For those of you who can't see the video, uh, Shelley may have just rolled her eyes. <laughs> I may be going... I am struggling to recall that bit. <laughs> no problem. No problem. Maybe I can help you out there. Um, so I'm using that because good fit is a problem. We use this term. See, I, I think I just set myself up to ask myself the question that I wanted to uh, get asked. No, I keep using that intentionally to be to be fair because we always use this term good fit and it, and it indoctrinates our teams um, into the tyranny of low expectations. Right. And so what we're saying to people is, um, was that person a good fit or a bad fit? And then the person's going to say, well, they're a good fit. Um, of course, they're a good fit. They're still working here. Or they're going to say, well, of course, they're a bad fit. They, uh, they, they're they not working here anymore. Um, but that that 
makes us think that fit is binary. In other words, before we even meet the person at the first interview, they are a good or a bad fit. Okay. And and that is the that, that is the, the wrong phrase to use because it means that people think to themselves, look, if they're a good fit, they'll work out. If they're a bad fit, they won't work out. There's no point doing this onboarding stuff. Instead, we want a spectrum mindset rather than a binary mindset. And what that means is that we're thinking all candidates lie across a spectrum from they definitely will work. It's almost like we couldn't not make them work through to they definitely won't work. There is no way that they can work across that spectrum. And then the job of the manager, okay, is to give them the best chance and invest their time through that 90-day onboarding process um, to make sure that we can give them the best chance of fitting. Um, so that 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 at the end we do the work so that we can make them a successful fit. You know, one of the most successful coaches of all time is a guy called Bill Campbell. Bill uh, from the book Trillion Dollar Coach. Um, Bill coached Apple and Google and many many other. I think Salesforce, many many other of the the top companies in. Um, in Silicon Valley. And Steve Jobs said of Bill Campbell, he makes B players into A players, right? And, and, and that really speaks to what I'm saying here, which is the spectrum mindset. The job of a manager is to grow people, to get mm. those people better. So you should be able to look at a new hire and say, how, how can we help them understand to make them as successful as possible? So the work that you do is... Um is with leaders to to help them to understand the role that they play, but is it also around helping them to understand the expectations they have, not just of the people, but of themselves first? Because I think sometimes that's missing, is I'm not really sure. Yeah. What does success look like? Like it's 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 like I'm gonna, I don't know, from Sydney, I'm gonna sail to North America but I don't have a map, but I'm going to end up somewhere. Um, yeah. Like what does success look like in every role, every role in an organization, the theory being should have a, a, a role scorecard. So we understand what are the measurables, not a job description, job descriptions are broad and vague. And, and, and we try to zoom that lens out as much as we can to get as many candidates to apply. Uh, whereas a role scorecard very specifically is designed to say, this is what success looks like in the role. For example, salesperson must sell $200,000 um, by 48 days from now, or whenever it is, 90 days from now, uh, whatever that means for you. And so, yeah, they uh, people should absolutely know. And, and not because we want them to be unsuccessful. It's really, really important. It's because we want them to be uh, successful. It's because we want them to understand this is the sandbox. This is where you can win. And this is where we want to help you win. This is where, you know, we want you to, to thrive in our organization. So for those leaders who are still kind of going, oh, I don't know whether I should do this whole onboarding thing. I know that uh, you know it's harder to find people. It's harder to retain them. Probably harder to find at the moment. You know, you, you're getting um, advertisements go out, and where you used to have hundreds of applicants, you're probably now getting maybe ten at the most. Um, and so. How much, what is the, um, you've got a lot of figures in your book and a lot of graphs too, I must say, um, is 
what a ballpark like average kind of role what are we losing what is it costing us when we're not onboarding effectively um look it's across multiple dimensions so so first of all is the culture okay so um the the culture is an intangible um uh, but we know that it connects to outcomes. So, so you know, for, for the most hard-nosed of leaders, um, when people don't understand something and then a group of people don't understand something, um, there will be rework and there will be mistakes and there will be problems that can be connected to real money. But that's not the... That's not the hard dollar cost. That's in fact, I've tried to make that the intangible cost if you if you like, but it's real, right? Second to that is that, you know, in the cultural aspect as well, when people misunderstand, it it, it leads to less cohesion and it, it leads to, to more toxic workplaces and it leads to more attrition, okay? And that is the segue to the, the hard dollar costs. Um, because there's been a lot of studies, and and mine was a part of that as well. When I say a lot, that effectively say um, there is a direct correlation between the effectiveness of the onboarding and the duration of the onboarding and attrition rate. So if you want to improve your attrition rate, and and not by Tuesday, but you know in a broader aspect, improve your onboarding. There there is. There is more than enough data to make that broad statement. But then the second is, what is the cost of that attrition? Um, so the example that I put in the book uh, was a company with 100 staff, um, and we worked on the Australian New Zealand average of 17% attrition per year. If they could bring that down through effective uh, onboarding process, um, which there's, you know, the book is designed to make that case to, let's say, an 8%. Um, there, I think the total saving was almost two million dollars um, uh, across that business. Now, that was a manufacturing business with fifty percent gross margins, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that didn't change the revenue. All they did was implement a onboarding process that affected the attrition uh, that led to less hiring costs. And and look, it's it's hard to explain that very quickly. That the 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 importance of the book is to make that business case that you're saying that this is why it's worth your effort. Because no one wants to do it because they're busy and no one's been fired for it and there's no KPIs, as I mentioned earlier, right? But the business case is there to say this is why you should do it because it's costing you way more than you think. Mm. Huge. Even if you just take the um, you know 14% down to 8% and go, what could you do with that time, given that, you know, there's, what was it, 14 hours across, you know, three months, um, that's that's time that could be better invested yeah. into your people and invested into, um, you know, making sure that they continue to align. Well, that's opportunity cost. But here's the thing. When, when a manager, let's say the average manager, when one of their team resigns, what sound do they make, right? They go, oh, maybe not exactly the point when the person resigns, right? But they're like, oh, no because they know how much work is in it. And I break down the cost between this is the administration, the HR kind of cost, and it's actually not that much. Love my HR people, but I'm just saying the burden on the manager when someone resigns is so much more, so much more um, in terms of 
interviewing, in terms of teaching, in terms of catching up on the work that the person left and, and, and covering and all of that stuff. And yet it's the manager who does the effective onboarding that can make that happen less. If you were to assign some type of accountability to the onboarding process, what might that look like? Ah, that's where our friends, the finance people come in. <clears throat> so, um, yeah, that's the thing, right? Because is as I kept working on the book, I was thinking, how can we get this to stick? Because I know that busy managers go back to being busy managers and it doesn't matter the edict from the CEO, like things eventually go back to normal, right? So what I um, what I proposed as an idea uh, that you may like to try is allocate budget only for the 90 days for the new hire, okay? And so what we're saying is new hires, let's say their salary is going to cost $20,000 arguably. So we're allocating $20,000 to the new hire and then to the manager, when you can validate that they're a successful fit, we will allocate an ongoing salary so that so that we're forcing them to comply by validating to their managers or whoever it is, okay, this is how we know they're a successful fit because A, we had the 13-week meetings, B, this is the original role scorecard, C, you can see how we've tracked that and this is my rating of this individual at the end uh, across those three elements, cultural, managers and technical uh, and that's why we should, we should um, commit to ongoing funding of this role. Wow. Or you lose the funding for the role. Correct. Mm, I like that. <laughs> it, it's also quite scary to think about that. Do you do you have an element in there? Or would you use some kind of exit interview? Because uh, I think, you know, organisations that do exit interviews, I know you talk about it in your book, um, but that we don't probably use the data from exit interviews to inform us of what to do. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. Um, so there's a book by a guy called Lee Branham, The Seven Hidden Reasons Employees Leave. Uh, the Seven Hidden Reasons Employees Leave. Uh, and Lee's background was doing exit interviews uh, in large organisations. So that's all day, every day. He would get into these interviews and it'd be just exit, 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 one after another all day. So he did 20,000 of these exit interviews, Right. Uh, you reckon that your job gets a bit challenging at times. He did 20,000 of these ex interviews and he was compelled to write a book because the data was just outrageous. So what he found is that uh, I might get these numbers slightly wrong because it's off the cuff, but it's in the book, the, the accurate, accurate number. So I think it was when we asked the question, um, why did the manager say that the employee left? 92% of the time, the manager says uh, it was because of money. When we ask the employee, why did the employee leave? 89% of the time, it was because of other reasons than money. So there's it's, it's just this absolutely confronting thing for managers to think, oh, it's money. Yeah, it's money. They've been offered more. They've been offered more. But that is just laziness, okay? And it's just a, it's just a really poor excuse for for not doing the hard things to build a culture that can improve attrition, uh, and that's part of 
in and that's connected to onboarding, right? That's the case that I make within the book. Um, and so this is the job to be done. It is in and in, in the workshops that I, I I when I work with leaders, we try to say uh that's not an excuse. What's the real reason? So we're really trying to say, oh, so person X left. Um, what was the story there? And and intuitively they can't help but say, ah, oh, they got offered more money. But Okay, so what's that's lovely. What's the real reason? Um, because the real reason is there, and and it speaks to thinking more deeply about that attrition problem that we all experience. Mm, absolutely. Uh, well, the the book onboarded how to bring new hires to the point where they are effective faster is it's a nice little book, but it's packed full of. Um, Lots of really good uh, insights. So I recommend uh, grabbing a copy if you've not got an onboarding process that lasts um, longer than two weeks, it sounds, Um, but definitely uh, really insightful to kind of have that as a resource and to extend your onboarding out to 90 days if for no other reason than to um, have successful hires, to keep them, to reduce attrition, give you back more time. It's a no-brainer, really. Um, but thank you so much for your time, Brad. Really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure to have a, a, a good conversation. Thank you. And thanks, everyone, for listening. I look forward to another Dynamic Leader conversation with you soon. Thanks again for listening to another episode of The Dynamic Leader. There is no better time than now to work through your leadership and people strategy, to establish what the future might look like for your business and how you might empower your people to help you succeed. It is through building the capability of your people and reducing their dependency on you that will keep you moving forward at pace and will see you remaining relevant in the future. I have worked with over 100 businesses across almost as many industries and seen firsthand the challenges that come with employing, engaging and managing staff. If you're looking to improve how you lead, why not reach out for a conversation? In the meantime, thanks so much for joining me and stay awesome.